Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. It's a beautiful morning after many weeks of deluge and we are in one of my favourite valleys in the Lake District. We're here today just above Brother Ilkeld Farm in Estale and I'm with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Happy 2024, Mark. Oh, I'm looking forward to this year, especially today because we're going into the Upper Esk and that is the wonderful wild area, a forgotten world that tourists never go to. It's just for the connoisseur. Yeah, absolutely right. I think we've talked about this before, Mark. My absolute favourite wild walk in the Lake District is from Bullerill Curled up the Upper Esk to Great Moss, then Campspout, Fox's Tarn, Scorfell, then back again uh, along the tops. I think it is superlative almost every step of the way. We're not going quite all that way, but we're doing something quite interesting here, Mark, because I think both you and I would pride ourselves on the number of fells that we've climbed. But there's one that we're going to visit today that neither you or I have climbed. No, this is it. I gather it's a Burkitt. It uh, is. And what is it? This one's called Scarlathing. Yeah, and it kind of sits in the middle of that huge amphitheatre, doesn't it? It's right in the ring of great craggy mountains. What a great way to start this new year, particularly under these fabulous skies. I'm looking up the valley now, Mark, and we can see a little bit of cloud on the tops, but a lot of it's burning off, so I think we're in for something rather special today. And we're taking a journey into places new for us, but we're also taking a journey today, Mark, back in time indeed we're going from the settled valley here we are um, at the bottom of the hard knot pass and we're going beyond farming into the wilds when the very earliest evidence of human influence in these mountains can be discovered yeah and very specifically if we think about the extractive industries of cumbria we've spent few podcasts looking at this we've looked at copper mines we've looked at the great wad mines up at seathwaite But if we rewind time a lot further, the very first extractive industry in the Lake District was stone axes, usually associated by most people uh, with Great Langdale, of course. But our guest today is going to say that they were found up here on the slopes of Scorfell, Scorfell Pike itself, and that there are remains in Upper Estdale of a thriving hunter-gatherer civilization. We've never gone quite this far back in time before, so this should be fascinating. Yes, indeed. So our guest today is Steve Dickinson, who gave us the magical wonder between Gosforth and Erton. This is the Vikings. The Vikings looking for a hall house. That was fascinating. And, and Steve's knowledge is quite remarkable. He has a tremendous grasp of early settlement Vikings right the way back. I can see Steve over there. It's a very frosty start, so let's go and start warming up and um, start our journey slowly, steadily, wandering back into the past. (laughs) 
It's been an interesting morning. We've come through glorious sunshine on the west coast of Cumbria. We've come to Eskdale. We've come towards the head of the valley, just at the foot of the Hardknot Pass. We've branched off along a farm track. I've got a great view up towards uh, Scorfell, right up ahead of us. Hardknot Fell, broader end. Behind me, I can see Heart of Fell. I'm in the company of somebody our listeners will know very well from our earlier expedition in the West here. It's Steve Dickinson. Can you introduce yourself again, then tell us a little bit about what we're going to do today? Yeah, it's great to be back out again with you, Mark. Uh, I'm Steve and I'm an archaeologist. I've been working in the Lake District for a long time now on various aspects of the archaeology, as you'll know from our trip out to Gosforth. But my heart started out here in the mountains, and as a fell walker, as you did, Mark, I roamed over the tops for many years. That got me interested in evidence for some of the earliest humans and their activity right out in the heart of the mountains here. So we're going to go back in time today to see that evidence high up in the fells. And from this setting, where will we be aiming? We're heading right up the valley next to the Esk that is just to the left of us here and following the Esk up to Great Moss below Campspout, Crag, Micheldore and that great amphitheatre of mountains. And I believe there is something rather special. Could you give us a little bit of a hint as to what we might be looking for? We're looking at monuments that are probably around 6,000 years old that were found by myself uh, about four years ago. They're burial cairns from a long-vanished race of people that came up here and were exploiting some of these high mountain sources of rock for axes. They didn't have chainsaws, as you might hear in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not. Their tools were far more humble. Yes. So we'll head off now, we'll go through a kissing gate and escape the chainsaw and find our way up beside the tinkling waters of the River Esk. Well, we've come up beside the significant waters of the River Esk and we passed the farm, Brother Kelt, and we heard the chainsaw operating there, which uh, is probably appropriate. Now, and probably you'll be able to tell us, Steve, why it's appropriate at the beginning of our go-back-in-time story. Yes, I think I can. Uh, the, the chainsaw owner, the, the farmer, was parding an ash and there's evidence from the Neolithic period, which is the time we're talking about, between maybe 4,000 to 6,000 years ago when people were actually doing the same thing but with stone tools and stone tools that were brought down the valley here from the highest peaks like Scorfell Pike. So it's uncanny to walk back in time, literally in the space of a few hundred metres, let's say, just here. And Brother Elkeld itself is a fascinating farmstead. Its history goes back to the dawn of recorded history in in the Lake District. Its name is fantastic, Brother Ilkel, what does that mean? Well, the brother relates to Furness Abbey and the lay brothers that came up here as part of the monastic estate, but its name also has the Ilkel bit. That relates to West Norse and Icelandic personal name Ulfkel's Booths. And we're talking about a Viking farmstead which became a monastic estate. So in other words, 12 centuries ago, 
he came there, Ulkelf came to this setting and established a timber dwelling, I'd imagine. Yeah, we were talking about a timber hall when we were down near Gosforth. Well, we're talking about the same kind of thing here at a really important junction of routeways, which we'll talk about. We understand the Viking origin of this uh, farmstead. Can you lead us forward in time, just momentarily, to the buildings we see today? What happened was that people, increasingly as they became settled in the landscape, rebuilt their buildings, most famously in the lakes in the 16th and 17th centuries. But much earlier than that, we know from other Viking settlements all around uh, Scandinavia and in England that timber translated into stone. And we can see, just looking back at the whitewash farmstead here, that the farmstead would have had stone and timber roots and it evolved bit by bit especially in the monastic period. Monks were great builders into the kind of farms that we see today. Why were the monks here? They were here because of the sheep. And there was a big competition between Furness Abbey and Fountains Abbey as to who was going to have ownership of some of the richest sheep pasture in the Lake District. Furness, as many listeners will know, was way down in the south of what is now Cumbria. And Fountains was way over in Yorkshire. These were big Cistercian monastic concerns and they wanted access to the rich sheep grazing land in the centre of the Lake District from Borrowdale right down to where we're here now. I presume they were exploiting the great wealth of the sheep, which was the wool. That's right. Wool was like the currency of the period for all the monasteries and in fact for most of Northwest Europe because you needed it for all the reasons that I might have stated in our previous broadcast about the Vikings, for ship sails, for clothing, all kinds of things. We wandered up the valley pasture. We're coming up to a huge wall with a ladder style we just climbed over. Beside it, there's a gateway with great stones to it. A very substantial and stately building marked the, perhaps the limit of farming in this valley. As we leave behind the clear evidence of a settled, domestic, farmed landscape, we're looking at a different landscape, Steve. Can you give us a picture of what it would have looked like, what kind of creatures we would be observing? I can see Brock Crag, which is badger, and Heron Crag, which means uh, sea eagle, but there are other things to tell us. Yeah, we would have been standing in a grove of trees, most likely, and we would have been tripping over a lot more rocks than we've tripped over so far today. Uh, lots of trees, not unbroken woodland by any stretch of the imagination. Wood pasture, grazed by deer and so forth in herds that would have wended their way up and down the valley and they would have had very little contact with any humans at the time. Not only deer, wild boar, lynx, bear, wolves, all these creatures apex predators, some of them, that would have regarded humans going into this landscape as prey. The first people that we know of who came here settled on the easiest pastures of the coast. That's right, and there's a lot of evidence from the west coast of Cumbria and even round to an important archaeological site called Stainton West near Carlisle, which was excavated recently, where people were picking off the easiest territories to take advantage of the resources both from the sea and from the land. Very rarely venturing into these valleys because they were so inhospitable. Any clues to where they may have arrived from? 
and we're talking about a period known as the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer period, it's often thought that they uh, came across a land bridge that connected England and the whole of the UK at that time to Europe. So they would have come across what is effectively the North Sea. They moved around in boats around the coast? Yeah, and on land as well, obviously picking the easiest ways to get around and gradually infiltrating into the farthest reaches of both England and of Britain. Did they move around a great deal? Well, they had to because their food was on the hoof, literally some of the time, and also their resources were seasonal, so they didn't want to overexploit. They couldn't overexploit any particular area, so they would have moved around. But what is interesting in the Lake District is there's almost no trace of them at all. There's a few flint flakes maybe from Waterhead Roman Fort from the excavations there, but there's hardly any trace of them. Whereas in the Pennines, you do find upland camps from that period. Right, we'll move on a little bit forward as we can see Bofell Peak coming to view and some lovely Herdwicks in the foreground. Makes a lovely composition. We've come further up the valley now. We're actually adjacent and underneath Urn Crag, which the sun, the morning sun, is warming up and highlighting and up to the east of me I can see the steeple on Hardnot and patches of young tree growth that have been planted there with native trees to revive what probably would have been the native landscape here going back in time. Which reminds me, Steve, we're talking about those hunter-gatherers who were on the coast. What caused them to start moving up into the mountains? It was the stone in the mountains that they were interested in. We're talking about a period where people were not scientists, but they were trying to understand the world that was around them. And these guys were particularly interested in stone because it was the only cutting technology that they had at the time. But also, it had a significance way beyond its practical use. Other traditional societies around the world who have made stone axes don't just regard it as a practical tool. They are often regarded as significant ritual objects, symbolic and redolent of stories of their creation and where they came from in their own right. They were highly prized talismans at the time. Quite distinct from flint, which obviously would have been relevant to them. They will have used it as a tool. Yes, flint was also mined in southern England. And the mines, like Grimes Graves in Norfolk, went into the underworld. We think of them nowadays, don't we, just as mines. They're practical things to get things out of the earth. But in those days, you think about the um, effort not just involved in creating the mine, but the physical operation of going down there into the dark and having to commune with the earth, literally, because you're in the middle of it, and almost like asking permission of the earth to give out what it is concealing. Exactly. And here we're talking about the same kind of thing, I think, where these high mountains were spiritually significant for the people of the time. And they conveyed messages that we are only just now beginning to understand in relation to the kind of monuments that people went on to create later in prehistory, like Stonehenge, like the Stone Circles. These kind of monuments made of rock symbolised more than just a circle of stone. 
we associate stone axes, many of us, with the axe factory on Piker Stickle and Harrison Stickle in the Blankdale Pikes. But the particular rock was a band, a seam that ran across the lakes. It came through here, didn't it? From where we're looking at the moment, up to Bowfell, we can almost track the line of that seam below Bowfell Links as it heads over towards the Scorfells. And right on the summit of Scorfell Pike were some of the remotest axe quarries of all at that period. And we know so much more now than even just a few years ago about the dating of these sites in particular. It used to be thought that their use and quarrying spanned quite a long period of time. Now we know it was confined to a particular period in the late Mesolithic, early Neolithic, between about 4,000 to 3,700 BC. This is a, a migratory activity. They weren't here all the time. Absolutely. You wouldn't want to come up here in the winter and do this kind of thing, even nowadays. So we're talking about a period in the summer months, I'm sure, only maybe a few weeks at a time, sufficient time for them to camp below the quarries, probably near some of the sites we'll see shortly, and then exploit the stone, get enough so they could just physically carry it away. So you're not talking about tens of kilograms of stone, you're talking about just a few prized objects, basically. From their coastal settings... What sort of routes do you think they would have followed? Well, the most logical route is the uh, river that we're standing almost next to, the Esk. Following the river up the valley would take them right to the sources of some of the stone that they were interested in. The tops, they might have been over the tops in the summer. Certainly they would have got much clearer perspective over where they were heading if they were up there, as opposed to being amongst the woodland of the lower valley. But down here, they had a, a natural compass that would enable them to get to where they needed to be. The river name Esk means ash tree, which tells you that it would have been densely wooded, probably as far as here. Yeah, I think we're possibly getting to the limit of the larger woodlands. I can, looking from here, I can see one single lone pine tree on the other side. It's taking advantage of a bit of shelter, but once we get a bit higher up, certainly above the Linko Esk confluence, we'll find it gets a bit harsher. The actual location of this seam of rock is very particular. Have you an idea how they would have judged where to come? That's a really good question. Uh, The rock runs across the central fells for about maybe 19 kilometres altogether, and they only exploited it in certain particular locations. So we can imagine, rather like explorers or fell walkers in the early period were doing, say, in the 19th century, early 20th century in the lakes, scouting over the landscape, looking for certain clues in the nature of the rocks that they were seeing. Very much like Charles Darwin when he went on his journeys in Snowdonia, looking to identify particular rocks. It was largely unmapped, and the rocks were unidentified, and those early explorers were very astute in finding things. And it goes back in time. Yeah, they were the literally the earliest geologists really and where we're going up into a area of volcanic rock around 460 million years old with so many different varieties and convolutions of strata and so forth this would have been a remarkable landscape to them and we would interpret this rock nowadays wouldn't we we would look at it and ask a geologist to explain how it evolved into the forms that we see now but you would not have those kinds of knowledge at that time so they were making their knowledge up and their stories about the creation of this landscape up 
in the way that we cannot start to imagine nowadays. Well, we'll head further up. We've just seen a lady, solitary lady, wandering up the fell. So this is a place for the solitary wanderer. Uh, and this trio of happy wanderers will head a little bit further up towards Linkove Beck and that lovely, lovely Packhorse Bridge there. Well, we wandered up the valley and it's such a glorious day. We are so blessed. Beautiful blue skies, and we've come up to the meeting of Linkove Beck with the River Esk. And uh, before we cross the wonderful little Packles Bridge, we're standing in a large sheepfold which has two compartments, and it will have had a significant role in the great sheep gather and the sheep management of all these wild, wild fells that stretch up for four miles or more up to the watershed. And the bridge itself reminds us of the great root of this uh, gather and the connection with Furness Abbey, the importance of this management of the sheep. But I'd like to get onto the topic of the journeying. We started the walk at the bottom of Hardknock Pass. There is that majestic Roman fort sitting above the cattle grid up on the shoulder of Hardknock. That was an east-west trade route that went over Hardnock Pass towards Rhinos Pass, going to Ambleside. Here we stand, in effect, on a north-south route, aiming for Borrowdale. So, Steve, can you take us back to the time of the hunter-gatherers and their use of this trade route, this journeying route through the fells? Yeah, well, I've already said that they were following the river up to get to this particular location, and here it's really significant because there are choices as to where you go but really you're only looking about going north and it's this connectivity in the central part of the Lake District that they would have been interested in. The rock that they were looking for occurred in Langdale, also at Scorpio Pike, we're heading towards Scorpio Pike, but it was taken north from here up to Keswick and then onwards to Carlisle, even into Scotland, way up to the Orkneys. Of course, this is a wild north-south route and the Lake District has other recognised uh, north-south routes. Yeah, it has a well-known Stihead Pass, Black Sail, got Eskhors, the hub of the Lake District as many people regard it. And from there you can move on down to Stake Pass between Langdale and Langstrath and getting over from there you get to the major routeway, the main north-south routeway that people know, everybody knows nowadays, Dunmail Rays and then Kirkstone. But they're few and far between and only two of those that I've mentioned are motor roads now. This is the Packhorse Bridge from a much later era. We're talking about a time when everything was done on Shanks' pony. Yep, you would have walked in, gathered your stone and walked out and there was no alternative. The kind of concept of using animals for portage, horses, came much later on. Well, we'll venture over this gorgeous bridge and we've got a sharp climb to do before we get to what will be the most exciting part of the journey as we go up the Esk Gorge. Well, we've come up, we're halfway up from Lincove Bridge and we're heading up towards Scarlathing. 
We're in an area is shown on the map as Throttle Garth. Garth is a clue to something here. Uh, throstle is thrush or fell thrush, Viking description of, of the thrush. The walls here are fascinating because with the bracken down, you can observe substantial walls. And we're actually standing in the midst of something that, Steve, you could explain to us. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the name Garth. We studied a few Garths when we were over at Gosforth, and those were important farmsteads and enclosure sites. This is just the same thing here. I was here back in the day, I think in about 1985, 86, surveying this site with a group from the Braitha Hole Trust. And uh, we cut down a lot of bracken and we revealed what you can see here today, thanks to the bracken being dead, as you said, the remains of a substantial building. We've got no real clues to its date, but from the size of the walling, I would suggest it's probably medieval, an upland sheiling or summer settlement of some kind. 13th century, would you guess? I think so. There's manorial records for this part of the area being enclosed in the 13th century. So it might relate to that and to a humongous wall that is heading upwards towards Scorpel Pike away from this site. So yeah, that goes on into Great Moss. Many fell walkers will have crossed it on the way to get to Campspout and Mickledor. The big boulders in this area that we're standing amidst, it's a sheiling. What was the function of a sheiling? Simply put, it's an upland structure, a montane structure, the function of which varied according to what you were doing at any particular time. They've excavated examples in Scotland, for example, where there were very basic shelters for shepherds out on the bends and the peaks. But here, we know through us having excavated one of these sites in Kentmere at Bryant's Gill, uh, that they can go back to the Viking period and they can be used for a whole variety of different functions. Iron making, for example, shepherding, uh, stock corralling, cultivating the land as well as we found in Kentmere. This would be a dwelling that people would have lived in throughout the year or just in the summer? We're really high up here. The example I cited over at Bryant's Gill in Kentmere is nearly a thousand feet up and it's really exposed and the Vikings employed specialist techniques to build its walls incorporating turf as well as stone and presumably timber to create the airtight walling. But as you can see, you couldn't really live up here in the winter. It'd be too difficult. Yeah, we couldn't resist uh, observing this feature, but we must press on because there's excitement ahead towards Scarlathing. You come up to a vast bowl in the hills, a great reveal. You've got slight side, cam crags, and scorefell with mist hanging around the east buttress. And before us, we have Scarlathing, which looks really impressive, even though it's a modest element of this great southern ridge of Esk Pike. This is volcanic rock. Can you give us a bit of a shortcut guide to what it is, Steve? Yeah, if we were here 460 million years ago, we'd be boiled alive or blown to bits because this is a caldera. It's a volcanic caldera dating back all that time. And we're looking at Borodell Volcanic Series rock, which, as you can see, is wound and contorted into those amazing shapes. As you were saying, uh, Mark, looking up to Cam Crag there and Tom Fox's crag, you can see the strata taking a great dip and dive up towards Long Green and up to Scorfell. 
And I always put myself back into the time we're talking about in the prehistory when people first discovered this landscape and what they would have made of this amazing place that we're standing in today. And they wouldn't have realised that the landmass we're standing on was south of the equator. That's right. <laughs> or connected to North America, depending on your point of view. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. oh. oh, well, there yeah. you go. And there's even a little bit of snow I can see up there, which you would expect in, in January, but there's been so little of it about this year. This is a special place to me, but it's also a very special place to you, Steve. Can you tell us why? The number of it for me was that I saw this blank on the map. You're talking about an area of landscape and majesty which is completely almost unknown archaeologically. And I thought there's got to be something here somewhere. There must be because of the guys working the stone high up on the pike there. They must have had some encampments or something further down. Basically I laid siege to this landscape for about four years, camping here, going backwards and forwards, traversing it and finding things that people have not found before. Amazing. Well, it's a magical place. We need to make a few more strides while the daylight's strong to go and find hints that you've got of these earliest people. Well, this is it. We've made to the top of Scarlating. Now this, for Dave and me, is a maiden ascent. So it's quite something to be here on a wonderfully clear day. And so to describe the view in Steve's company is very special. So I'm looking south and I can see down there towards Stainton Pike, Yode Castle. I think you just see Heskfell. Then beyond that, you can see Whitfell and Buckbarrow. Just to the left of that, Blackcomb and then Green Crag. And then we get Harterfell, Hardknot, Dow Crag and Greyfriar, Swirl Howe, Great Cars and Little Stand, Long Top, which is the highest point on Crinkle Crags. And you can see Three Tarns, which uh, in old maps is Busco Hawes. There you are, something you didn't know. The Lynx is vaguely there and Bowfell is lost in the cloud. The sunlight is beaming on the crags on the southern ridge of Esk Pike, and you can see Yeasty Rig crags beyond, and the summit of Esk Pike is lost in the cloud. To the left of that is Esk Hawes, the proper Esk Hawes, right at the source of the River Esk. Down below us, immediately, you've got the Great Moss. Lost in the clouds, to a large extent, is Ill Crag. What is beamingly lit up is the majestic pen with S. Butteris, or Dow Crag as it's called on the, on the survey map. And behind that, the cloud is wreathing on Scorfell Pike. To the left of that, of course, is Mickledore, which you can clearly see, and Cam Spout coming down from it. To the left of that, of course, is the East Butteris of Scorfell, and the main mass of Scorfell. We've also got Cam Crag, which curves up onto what's known as Long Green on Scorfell. And to the left of that, Horn Crag with the summit of Slightside. Left of this is Great Howe, and then you're curving round towards the lower end of the valley, running down the bowl, back down the way we came. In the far distance, you can see the area around Devote Water and Barnscar. Steve, you can tell us just a little bit about Barnscar, because that's pertinent. 
Yeah, Barnsgar is a well-known prehistoric settlement largely dating, we think, to the Bronze Age, although it's never been excavated to tell us. But the whole area around Barnsgar is littered with hundreds of field clearance cairns and other cairns uh, running all the way out to Devitt Water. And as you say, Mark, you can just about see it from here. <laughs> yes, there you are. We're going to walk a few paces on to a very special place that Steve's going to show us. Well, we've come off the top and there's a Herdrick you bleating at us and admiring our progression towards what is another wow moment. We've come onto the eastern side of the ridge of Scarlathing, but what is in front of me, with the knowledge that Steve has got, is stupendously important. Can you describe this to us, Steve? I'll do my best, Mark. Firstly, we said, what have you, before. Yep. This is really epic, and we are in an epic place for prehistory, because not only are we looking at some of the most majestic mountains in England, this cairn, it looks natural, like it employs the edge of a natural runnel of boulders, but the bit that I'm standing on on the end here has been built in a form of a rough square with a very large rock slab on the top of it. Actually, what we're looking at is a, a ruckle of beckstone, I would describe it as. It's very circular stones, certainly not the sort of stones you would see on the top of a hill, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, there's about a hundred of them in a tight cluster exposed above the turf and just above it there's one large stone yeah where i'm standing mark just into the body of the cairn itself there's a whole sequence of big boulders one yes. two three four five six seven eight and if you look very closely you'll see there's a white volcanic rock there's a browny tan volcanic rock there's a white one there's a browny tan one white one brown tan these are deliberately set here. Yes. Now, it's been suggested to me that this is entirely natural, but glaciers or anything else that's natural don't put rocks down in that sequence. sequence. In any form of sequence. And when I first came here, I was sitting right here on this rock, having my lunch, looking at this view down towards Greyfriar and Dalcrag, and I thought, wow, this is an amazing place. And if I'd look around behind me, I can see the pike. Surely somebody would have done something around here. And then I just put my hand down and I noticed on this rock, if you come right down to it, yes. you'll see there's some markings on it. Oh, they're very much so. Yeah. I've never in my whole archaeological career seen anything like that. No. I've never seen any glacial marks that look anything like that either. No, they're etchings, yeah. you could so, say. So really, this rock, it's not very big. It's only about maybe less than two feet by about a foot. Yes. Pretty chunky. And it's banded, yes. uh, naturally banded volcanic rock with lichen growing all over it and partly over the mark as well yes. indicates it's really really old quite Joel just said this is natural I'll go with that yep. but it's been selected deliberately because of its markings on it if it's yes. natural and what we can see I think is a rough form of a face here with a couple of eyes Bad. and maybe a chin here yes. so I think this is very reminiscent of an animal which would have been very current in the Lake District at the time when this cairn was built which is a lynx right it has the shape of a feline with its ears to oh, either side yeah. of it so that's what I'm going with. And I think this was why it was selected to go on yes. this cairn. It hasn't moved barely a, a whisker from in where it was originally. 6,000 years Which, old. you know, when you think of that time span yeah. in a hostile environment, it's quite staggering. Yeah. This is very much undisturbed territory. Nothing's been excavated here or anything like that to tell us anything more about it. And fell walkers don't tend to come to a place like this. No, and I think that's one of the reasons that this has never been recorded before. So as a burial cairn, who would they be burying? Well, my guess would be 
the people who were intimately associated with and had deep knowledge of this landscape, perhaps the leader or leaders of the groups that came up here and who maybe died even when they were trying to get to the Axe Stone or did something stupid, broke a leg, you're not going to get the mountain rescues to come and get you 6,000 years ago. You would die, basically. So people died up here, and we know this from other locations in Britain and elsewhere in northwest Europe, like in the Alps. They were buried in specific places in the landscape and near where they died, and there were ceremonies conducted around the And, and such people part. were revered for their expertise. That's right. So I think we're talking about people who knew the stone here and knew where to go to get the best, most symbolic, the most prized rock of all. So, strictly, you're saying under that bank there, there was bones. Maybe not just bones of a person, but they were known to have buried animals with them, or the bones of animals, right. symbolic animals, maybe even lynx bone. We don't know. We've wandered over some tussocky ground and a, a mossy area that's thick ice, load-bearing anyway, so we've come across that area. We've come to another ruckle of stones with one large one, very substantially large, on the west-facing slope of the ridge of the lower end of S Pike, South Ridge. What are we looking at here, Steve? Well, we're looking at a large ruckle of natural boulders. Uh-huh. It has a spring issuing from beneath it, which is very boggy now. You can yes. see that just here. You may just be able to pick it up on the microphone with a trickle of water. We're in the sun, so the rock in the middle of this really stands out. A very banded, quite dramatic monolith, which I think has been erected and propped upright. You'll see there's some stones that have been put between it and the rocks next to it. Deliberately, I think. They're not right. just there unnaturally. But just up to the uh, left of us here, you can see in the sunshine here, there's a very distinctive blue volcanic rock with some very bright green lichen on it. Yeah. Well, um, that is an engraved rock. It's a boulder about two feet, three feet long by a foot and a half. Yeah. Old measure. Oblong square shaped with fissuring in it. Yeah, we're looking at a series of vertical grooves on the left-hand side of the rock very deeply scratched into the rock surface. And then there's a diagonal groove running down from top right to lower left, which intersects with these other grooves. This is what I think is known in archeological speak as a polissoir. And that means a stone that was used to grind other stones on it, ah. to sharpen other stones on it. Right. And this particular volcanic rock is volcanic plastic sandstone. It's not pure volcanic rock. It's got elements of other rock. What does that mean in terms of what we're talking about today? Well, these people who came up here had stone tools. They were getting stone blades and making rough outs of stone axes from the peaks overlooking us here. They were bringing some of them down here to this point where the spring is with this monolith in the middle of this natural cairn. And they were not just sharpening blades and tools on this rock before heading back down the valley towards the coast with the, what they found. But the rock itself had an enormous symbolic significance to them because of its location. They had to take them out of bedrock. Can you give us a bit of a clue as to the process of getting them out, chipping them to a raw state, and then maybe finishing them? On Pike of Stickle, where most of the research on this has been carried out, 
They went to the extent of fire setting, so they set fires against the rock, which effectively, if you pour water on it, it breaks the rock up. It's like a primitive form of quarrying, because they had no iron tools or chisels or anything like that. You get big lumps of the rock as a result, which had to be chipped and flaked off with a probably a bone mallet of some kind, right. gently knocking it away, like a flint napper would. Yep. Uh, and that reduces the rock down to the rough out of an axe, which has the shape, but isn't a complete item. And then what happened, we know, is they took that away, most likely to the coast, and then they polished it using sandstone rubbers down there. Is there evidence down there of places where they did that? Yes, there is. Um, there was a famous excavation in the 19th century of a place at Enside Tarn, uh, north of Sellafield, where they actually found both hafted stone axes and also the polishing stone that they used for this. That's yeah. remarkable, isn't yeah. it? The hafted axes are still uh, visible in a glass case in the British Museum. It must be a laborious and tough process. Perhaps you've had a go? I have, uh, is a while ago, and uh, we used uh, Langdale stone and did it with a group of children who were very good at it. Oh, you uh, used the children? Oh, yes, we, yeah, we <laughs> used the children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we all had a great time. We didn't make very useful axes, but we all learned how challenging and difficult it was to work the stone. A real craftsman's job. So these hunter-gatherers living on the coast would have come up the wooded valley of the Esk, naturally navigate up here, Coming to this great bowl of the mountains, they would have found this very special rock which they will have identified as ideal for making tools, uh, their stone axe tools. They will have tooled the tools on rocks like this particular one here. One has this picture of somebody kneeling down, etching into it and sharpening their tools on this one particular rock. And this will have been revered, rather like the cairn we've seen just recently, uh, for those who have fallen in this vicinity. But they will have then taken these stones down to the coast and distributed them as uh, very important high-status tools within the range of society, which extended right into Europe. Thousands of stone axes from Langdales and from also from Scorfell Pike here have been found all over the country and in Ireland as well. So we know they had immense uh, significance for people all over these islands at that time. And it's remarkable to think where we're at now in 2024, believe it or not. We're talking about something that started out 6,000 years ago from this spot. We talk about copper or we talk about wad, we talk about all these mineral elements that have been won from these hills, but strictly we're going back in time to the point where the real wealth of the mountains was recognised throughout Britain as coming from here. Yeah, that's right. And in the 80s and the 90s, for example, these items were thought of just as like trade goods, really. But now it's recognised that they have a deeper wealth in terms of their significance and symbolism and attributes and the locations where they were found form part of their stories. There are other stone axe factories known in Britain and in Ireland, but the ones in the Central Lakes have by far the largest output of any of them. And of all of these places, these are the highest mountains where these items came from and as we know through having walked them ourselves over many years they have a particular kind of value to people even now this is wealth of a different kind to wad and copper it's about the symbolic wealth of a, a nation's landscape this majestic landscape 
is embodied in the stones, in the minds of those people who are actually winning them. They're carrying their emotional connection with this landscape. That's exactly right. I don't think we appreciate that nowadays because we're a commodity-rich society and it's very a disposable society i was going to say as well where we throw things away that have no further value but there's evidence from uh, archaeology all over england scotland and ireland that people revered these items even when they were discarded if they did discard them they discarded them in highly symbolic places like some of them were found in the river thames as a kind of votive deposit for example these things have a value to them that we just can't get to grips with nowadays. It's hard for us to contemplate how important they were. It's carrying the heart and connection with the place, the spirit of place. That's right, it's all about the spirit of place and what better place to celebrate it and to commemorate it than here. journey's end we're back at the car park at the bottom of hard knot pass the sun's long gone uh, and in fact night will be uh, with us very soon starting to get chilly mark but what a fabulous day we've had yes indeed uh, i started off with a coat and gloves and as we got further up the valley i peeled off the jacket took off the gloves we were hoping it would stop at that point <laughs> it was warm up there and the whole experience warmed my heart we had a wonderful feeling of connection with a landscape that means so much to both of us rather nice to bag a new fell what a great place to go and see because it's right in the middle of the amphitheater it is indeed great place to go yeah it's rather like the south ridge of esk pike it's just got yeah. a series of rocky knots and knolls each one of them has qualities uh, you go up to Easty Riggs Crag and Charlie's Cairn and up to the summit. I think Espike, in its whole entity, sits in the middle of somewhere very special. It does. And the subject itself, I thought was really fascinating. We've talked a little bit in the past, haven't we, about these stone axes, but I never felt we really kind of got under the skin of it as a subject. And for me, thinking about it as the first extractive industry is quite interesting and how important it was this was one of the most important industries in britain at that time and it gives us this insight into the lives of people who we know very very little about but we can see these elements in the landscape here brilliant absolutely brilliant the whole experience is marvelous you see the herdwick sheep were all up there observing as they are almost modern by comparison with what we were looking at uh, our usual housekeeping, Mark. First and foremost, it does cost money to keep these podcasts going. Uh, so we appeal to listeners who enjoy what we do, either spread the word, let other people know that helps us climb the algorithms, or you can buy from our variety of Country Stride guidebooks. They can be found at www.countrystride.co.uk or probably best of all, you can give as little as £2 a month to us via Patreon, and you can find details about how to do that again on our website www.countrystride.co.uk. You wanted to give a plug, Mark, to well, your yeah. lovely linescapes well, that you can buy. Well, absolutely, because all the episodes have got one of my line drawings on, and invariably they are original. So, if you would like one of my drawings, then you can email me through Countrystride, 
and uh, we can have a conversation about uh, acquiring a print signed. And you can get one for as little as ten and a half thousand pounds. No, I, <laughs> I think they're, they're affordable, but I'll let oh, you deal with that kind yeah, of thing. Uh, I'll put through the emails. Next up, I think we're probably talking fell walking and extreme fell walking. Hopefully that goes ahead if the weather holds out because that's the challenge at this time of year. But there's a few great podcasts lined up that I'm very much looking forward to. For today, night falling over one of the best valleys in this country. We are saying goodbye and see you on next fortnight's Country Strong. Country Strong.